Hey everyone, we just wanted to wish you a happy Friday the 13th and let you know that after tonight's episode, we're going to be doing a little question and answer session with each other, um, sort of interviewing one another to give you guys a better idea of who we are and why we're doing this. So if you want to learn a little bit more about us, stick around after the show. This is not a review. This is an impact statement. This is Dr. Scarelove. Attention. The following may contain material deemed unsuitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. More importantly, this episode may contain spoilers. Consider yourself warned. If you have not seen the film or films featured in this episode, the Scarelove Society recommends pausing now, then returning with the stories fresh in your mind. Still here? Okay, let's open the door. Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. How are you? Well, I'm Mrs. Voorhees. On February 24th, 2004, an unshaven and disheveled man arrived at a suburban Swiss residence and sat in the house's front garden. When the homeowner noticed the stranger, he came out to confront the uninvited guest. Heated words were delivered. Then, stab wounds. Peter Nielsen died on the threshold of his home in front of his wife and children, while Vitaly Koloyev walked away, unhurried, his body coated with blood. Two years earlier, Koloyev had been patiently waiting for the arrival of his family at the airport. He'd been working on an architectural project for some time in southern Spain, and as the project had just finished, his wife Svetlana and son Constantine and daughter Diana were coming to celebrate and reunite with their father. Their plane never arrived. Koloyev initially received no information about the delay, nor answers to the whereabouts of his family. Then, the press began showing up to cover the breaking news of a crash. Frustrated and scared, Koloyev rented a car and drove north, to Germany, where the rumored wreckage was said to be located. He joined other volunteers that were searching the surrounding area in airplane debris, and had the unfortunate luck of finding his first daughter's pearl necklace, and then her body. Koloyev's wife and son were found shortly thereafter. He had to find his own answers. Among the other victims were some of Russia's best and brightest young students on their way to celebrate their various achievements with a Spanish vacation. Explanations were given. The Russian airliner had collided midair with a DHL cargo plane over southern Germany near Lake Constance. All passengers and crew of both aircraft were confirmed dead. But how did this happen? In the modern age of air travel, especially after the rise of security and safety measures in the wake of the September 11th terrorist attacks, how could a tragedy like this occur? Negligence, pure and simple. The regional air traffic controller on duty that fateful night saw the impending collision on his screens and had given the wrong instructions to one of the aircraft. He did not contact the other. His error and inaction led to the deaths of 69 people. 45 of those were children. The air traffic controller's name? Peter Nielsen. Almost half a century earlier, a pair of young lovers snuck into a storage shed to engage the fantasies they'd been harboring. 
Claudette and Barry were seasoned camp counselors and had eagerly awaited to resume the sexual relationship they'd begun the previous summer. They were in various states of undress when they were interrupted by an unseen guest, and as they make attempts to excuse their behavior, much like being caught by parents that have come home early, the lovers were viciously attacked. Both are stabbed to death in the dim light of the storage shed, and no attempt was made to conceal their bodies. Oh, my sweet, innocent Jason. My only child. You can drown. You never paid any attention. What you did to him. Look what you did to him. The summer camp was plagued by other misfortunes after this. A series of fires and a water poisoning led to the camp's closure in 1962. When a new group of young people attempt to reopen the camp decades later, the murders resume and more details emerge. What started this series of horrific events that led to the nickname Camp Blood? Again, negligence. In 1957, a young boy found himself struggling to swim in the transparent waters of Crystal Lake. He shouted and pleaded for help, but his cries went unanswered. He eventually tired and succumbed to the water his body slowly dropping to the lake's sandy bottom. At the time, lifeguards were nowhere to be found because they were in the storage shed, acting on their teenaged sexual impulses. Barry and Claudette were the two counselors responsible for watching over the children's swimming, and their absence led directly to a young boy's death. His name was Jason. The following summer, the unrepentant lovers were in the very same shed, and met their demise at the hands of someone thirsty for revenge. But who could be capable of such a vicious reprisal? A grieving parent, of course. Let's be clear. We are not intending to make light of real-life tragedy, nor are we condoning murder because of others' mistakes or misdeeds. The notion of an eye for an eye is a concept that has gotten the world into too much trouble for far too long. What we are saying is that we can recognize the powerful driving force behind such gruesome actions. The quest for revenge is nothing new in cinema, or literature for that matter. From the novels of James Fenimore Cooper and Herman Melville, to modern films like The Revenant, Death Sentence, and John Wick, in which case the loss of a beloved pet elicits the bloodlust, make audiences cringe, yet feel some eagerness for the adventure to succeed, to right the wrongdoing. Dramas, westerns, and other genres are overflowing with what grief and loss can do to the human mind, and the course of action they embark upon. But the one genre that doesn't use this emotion as motivation as often strangely enough, is horror. Now, before lashing out at us for saying this, we are speaking more specifically about the slasher subgenre. Horror, of course, served dishes of revenge, hot and cold. Frankenstein's monster wants revenge for what humanity created. Hannibal Lecter said he preferred to, quote, eat the rude. Films like I Know What You Did Last Summer, My Bloody Valentine, April Fool's Day, and countless others can be cited here. The Burning also deserves a shout-out and a future episode to break down the Cropsey legend, and, more recently, the incredible Mandy turns revenge into neo-noir beauty, but slashers rarely use grief as the fuel for such carnage. Friday the 13th opens with a young hitchhiker named Annie as she makes her way through upstate New York to the newly reopened Camp Crystal Lake, 22 years after the original murders of Barry and Claudette. She is to be a new camp counselor, but never actually makes it there. Despite warnings from her driver, Enos, and Crazy Ralph, who warns her, you'll never come back again, and stories of murders, fires, and poisoned water, she still presses on to her new job. When it comes to the idea of the Harbinger, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better first example of the Harbinger character 
that has become such a typical horror trope. If you think of an earlier example, let us know in the comments. But, of course, to no surprise, she doesn't listen. And she should have. She's dropped off about halfway to Camp Crystal Lake and is picked up by another unknown driver, who chases her into the woods and slashes her throat. It is seen from the very beginning that Camp Crystal Lake hasn't changed much at all. The film cuts to the camp where the new owner and other camp counselors are scrambling to put together the camp in preparation for kids to arrive. It is apparent from their interactions that not only does Mr. Steve Christie, the owner, have entirely too much on his hands, but the counselors are nothing more than kids themselves. They seem unprepared and unmotivated for all of the work they are expected to take on, and act like kids on vacation themselves. Not only is this a recipe for disaster, but also a signpost to how dangerous it really is to leave your kids in the hands of strangers who don't understand the weight of responsibility. Steve leaves the camp to get supplies for the pending thunderstorm, and the counselors are left alone. They head to the lake where they are swimming and goofing around. We hear the classic ch 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 ah 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 kill 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 sound and are given another glimpse from the killer's point of view. They watch as one of the counselors pretends to drown. They all jump in to save Ned, and as Marcy is about to give him mouth to mouth, he reaches his hands around her neck and pulls her into a kiss. Everyone shows a mixture of exasperation and humor about the situation, but if we know anything about the killer, and we hope you already do, if you don't, stop now and watch the film. We understand why this entire situation would be triggering. As everyone makes their way back to the cabins, Ned sees an unknown person enter his own. He follows, and Jack and Marcy enter after him a while later. Jack and Marcy have sex on the bottom bunk, and when Marcy gets up afterward to head to the bathroom, Jack feels a drop of blood splash onto his face. It is from Ned's throat which has been slit, and then suddenly an arrow pierces Jack's throat from below the bunk. Then, poor Marcy gets an axe to the face as she gets ready for bed. An all-around bloodbath and an air of unsettling paranoia in a span of just a few minutes. What we've seen so far is a bunch of teenagers unprepared for their jobs, both in terms of maturity and commitment. All of these teens have one thing on their mind. Sex. They're either trying to kiss each other, trying to play strip monopoly, or have sex. All save for Alice, the virginal good girl, who doesn't take off her clothes, doesn't give in to the advances from her boss seen in the beginning of the film, and, most importantly, doesn't have sex with anyone. What we begin to understand after watching each of these teens knocked out one by one is that they're killed in order of most irresponsible to the least. The girl who knows nothing about the camp history is first. The kid who pretends to drown and keeps playing pranks is second. Two horny teenagers are third and fourth. Fifth is Brenda, who suggests to play Strip Monopoly, then ventures back to her cabin, only to be lured out by a child's voice who yells, Help me! Brenda doesn't do anything when she first hears the call, which seems to trigger the killer to yell again. Brenda reluctantly gets up and looks around. From the killer's perspective, we can see that maybe they're trying to judge her response time to help a child in need. Or maybe they're just out for blood. The film cuts to Steve, the new owner of the camp, who's stuck at the diner while the thunderstorm pours down all around him. He pays for his meal and remarks to the waitress that he needs to get back to the camp because the counselors are literally babes in the woods in every sense. While again, we don't condone murder in any way at all, should we feel bad for the teenagers getting murdered one by one for just being, well, teenagers who are acting as teenagers do on impulse and hormones? Or should we condemn them for acting like adults and doing adult things like sex, and therefore see their punishments as somewhat crazily justified? This seems to be the way we've always thought about teenagers in adult situations then and even now. And there's always the question of judging their actions. Do we treat them as an adult or as the child they technically are? 
How then do we justify children in charge of children at a summer camp? After running off the road, the cop shows up and gives Steve a lift back to the camp. When he arrives, another Jeep's lights are on him, and he remarks, Oh, it's you, clearly recognizing the killer, who then stabs him. So here, we have the first signifier that the murderer not only knows Steve, but must be familiar with the camp as well. Back in the cabin, Alice and Bill are worried that they haven't seen any of their friends. They leave to investigate and find not only an axe in Brenda's bed, but the phone lines cut and cars that won't start. When the power goes out, Bill takes it upon himself to check the generator. When he doesn't come back, Alice goes to help him, but finds his body stabbed with arrows to the door of the generator room. Horrified, she runs back to the main cabin, only to see Brenda's body thrown from the window as she approaches. When we saw Annie from the beginning get into the unknown killer's vehicle, we saw they were driving a jeep. Then, we saw Steve driving a similar Jeep. So when Alice sees the Jeep pull up, she assumes it's Steve's, but is instead greeted by a middle-aged woman wearing a turtleneck, claiming to be an old friend of Steve's. She then reveals something poignant that makes everything that's happened before make sense. She is the mother of Jason Voorhees, who drowned in 1957, when the counselors we discussed in the beginning were having sex and not watching him. It seems, then, that Pamela Voorhees has taken it upon herself to not only enact revenge on the camp, but prevent it from ever opening again, to save another child from the same unfortunate fate, or out of blind rage. That's up to the viewer to decide. Jason was my son, and today is his birthday. Well, I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? Not after what happened. Now that she's revealed herself as the killer, she tries to kill Alice, but Alice is able to knock her out. They move to the beach and fight once again, and Alice grabs a machete and cuts off Mrs. Voorhees' head. Exhausted, confused, and terrified, she falls asleep in a canoe, which floats out onto the center of Crystal Lake. As she stirs, Jason's corpse leaps out of the water and attacks her in the canoe, traumatizing her even further. The film ends with medical staff telling Alice that there was never any boy found, and Alice concludes the film with saying, well, then he's still there. Now for the real question. No! Answer the question. Same category. Oh, please stop. Name the killer in Friday the 13th. Jason! 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 I'm sorry. That's the wrong answer. No, it's not. No, it's not. It was Jason. Afraid not? No way. Listen, it was Jason. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. Then you should know Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, was the original killer. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. I'm afraid that was a wrong answer. Lucky for you, there's a bonus round. But poor Steve, I'm afraid he's out. The hockey masks, coveralls, and machete are staples of costume shops and Halloween parties. The items, the masks specifically, are so synonymous with the death of teenagers that it's often easy to forget that Jason wasn't the first killer of Friday the 13th. The villain in Scream even points this out as part of a sick game. Even the hockey mask doesn't make its first appearance until halfway through Friday the 13th Part 3, but Jason shares a commonality with the original killer, besides the blood relation of mother and son. Both are driven to revenge specifically out of grief. Pamela kills camp counselors because they represent the immoral embodiment of what took her son from her, while Jason kills to avenge that same embodiment that took his mother from him. A cursory glance at the candlelit shrine in Jason's shack is enough to prove how deeply affected he is by his own mother's death. So, how is this different from other iconic horror slashers? 
Let's break them down. First, Freddy Krueger, a janitor and pedophile who was burned alive by the revenge-seeking parents of the children he abused. Upon his return, Freddy gets back at the murderous mob by attacking their children once again. Here, selfishly, the killer seeks vengeance for himself. Leatherface. A product of generational inbreeding and severe emotional and physical abuse, Leatherface kills because he's told to, has always been told to, and knows nothing else. A life without murdering is a concept completely alien to him. While it could be argued that his killing is a result of a rage for what he has been made into, the bottom line is that he kills because it is, to him, normal, not because of any particular loss. The original Ghostface killers have no motive other than the movies, which is, under the surface, a desire for fame. Although much like Pamela Voorhees, the second film does present a grieving mother as the killer. The difference, though, is that Billy Loomis's family already shows signs of psychopathic tendencies in their lineage before grief happens, whereas the Voorhees family is fractured and driven to murder because of grief. Billy, in Silent Night, Deadly Night, slips into his murder spree because of a psychotic break due to the loss of his parents. He kills at random rather than in honor of his family. The same sort of psychotic break is featured in Sleepaway Camp as Angela's confusion about her gender identity leads to her rampage. Michael Myers kills because, well, he wants to. As you can see, none of these are triggered by the grief of losing a loved one. They are, for the most part, a product of selfishness or result of one's own mental instability. Sure, you can argue that Pamela Voorhees and her son are also acting out of their self-centered desires, and each have suffered their own psychotic breaks, but this doesn't change the fact that both suffered, at least to them, incomprehensible losses that served as catalysts. Which, like in the case of Koloyev and the air traffic controller, does not excuse the subsequent actions, but it does provide us with some measure of understanding as to what led them down such a dark path. I had a Mercedes, which I'd had a number of years, and it broke down on the Connecticut Turnpike. So I said to myself, I need a new car, universe. <laughs> and I went out to go shopping for a car, and I found a little Scirocco. I thought, oh, that's what I want. I want a cool little car like this. And so the phone rang, and my agent said, how would you like to do a movie? I said, great, that'll pay for the car that I want to buy. And he said, well, was, now there's just one other thing I have to tell you. He said, it's a horror film. And I said, oh, no. So the script came, and I read it, and I said, what a piece of... And I said, oh, nobody is ever going to see this. It will come, and it will go, and I'll have my Chiraco. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Krista. Um, I am what you would call kind of new to the horror genre. Uh, I grew up on Disney, and my mom does not like horror in any sense of the word. So when I met uh, Drew in our PhD program, um, he introduced me to a world of horror that I thought I was too afraid to watch, which, to be fair, a lot of it scares the shit out of me. But, um, I like it. So, yeah, that's me. I like that you said PhD program, like, super pretentious. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to we be We met in our PhD program. Is that not where we met? We, we did meet there. <laughs> we could also say that we met in a bar. We did, technically we did meet in a bar. Exactly. No, technically we met on Facebook. We don't talk about those things. <laughs> It's, uh, it's just not, it's not good. Um, uh, but I guess, uh, my name's Drew, um, and I did meet Krista here in our PhD program. I was wearing a smoking jacket at the time, and I was talking about the great books. Um, but in all seriousness, <laughs> folks, uh, we actually, you know, we, we both studied English, and we got bogged down with... The idea of what it means to get a degree, uh, a terminal degree in English, and how 
we're supposed to act and what we're supposed to do and what jobs we're supposed to have and what we, we're supposed to study what we're supposed to study yeah mm-hmm. and we kind of lost sight about what we loved um and i have always loved the horror genre she's newer to it than i am and i would say maybe i have a little bit of a part in that um but i think that the whole reason why we started doing this podcast is because we wanted to actually get out there our thoughts about things and not have it be needed to be peer-reviewed or to be you know lauded by any particular website or something like that we just like talking about things and we like discussing things and we like putting our our thoughts down and so we did that yeah and you know you don't have to have a degree in something to enjoy horror um do you like to be scared great cool then you like horror you don't have to go to school for this you don't have to study anything you just have to watch the movies or read the books um and I guess that's why we like to talk about it. Let's let's be clear. We we recommend everybody go to school. Um, if that's something that they're into. If that's what you want to do. And I will say this: that you know, um, <clears throat> besides a, a PhD degree giving me that extra layer of pretension that I was always missing, <laughs> um, it it really did teach me more ways to think about things. Let's be honest. You just wanted to be called Dr. Drew. I did. Because <laughs> I feel like I could be better than Dr. Drew Pinsky. Oh, those are fighting words. Are they? Or is <laughs> he just kind of, I mean, he kind of looks like your dad. He does kind of look like my yeah, dad. Your dad kind of looks like Dr. Drew. Okay. So well. basically, and if I'm now Dr. Drew, then... It's a whole layer of weird. You're, you basically married your dad. Oh, shut don't say those things. Well, it's so basically makes me feel weird. It's old boy. Oh that's, God. That's okay. All right. So what we're gonna do um, is we each wrote three questions, and we're gonna interview each other. Like, let you want to go back and forth. Like, yeah. You go. You do one. I'll do one. Mm-hmm. Um, just so you, if any of you are actually out there listening, can get to know us a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So, um, who wants to go first? I would like to start. All right. So when I think about my earliest memories of horror, um, I think about my parents watching um, The X-Files. And for whatever reason, you know, when I was a child, I was born in 1990. So uh, every time I heard the opening music, uh, (laughs) it scared the shit out of me. But now I love it. So I guess my first question for Drew here would be, what are your earliest memories of the horror genre, and why do you think you've stuck with it oh, as a man. fan? I like my my I, I know my earliest memory, hands down. Um, I saw John Carpenter's The Thing, which we did an episode on. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how old I was, but. I watched it without my parents and probably without my parents' permission. Mm-hmm. And it scared the hell out of me. Let's see, I was probably living in Ohio at the time, so um, I had to have been, you know, at least 10, mm-hmm. 10 or 11 at the very most. Um, and my memory was. Not of the film itself, but the lasting impression it, it left on me. And that was that I couldn't trust anybody. And the best part of that was when I told my, my father I had seen it and that it scared me. He had not seen the film, but he knew about it. And I remember I'm an only child and my bedroom was right next door to their bedroom. And I remember being scared and going to bed, and my father (laughs) started, you know, because he knew I wasn't able to sleep, and he knew we have we have a guest. Sorry, we have an interloper. Our dog. Our dog. One of our dogs has uh, has come in to say hello and talk about her love of the horror genre. But I remember uh, laying in bed, not being able to sleep, and then my father goes, "The thing." Is in the basement. 
<laughs> it's coming up the stairs. It's at the top of the stairs. It's in the kitchen. <laughs> it's coming down the hallway. Slowly. Why do parents do that? Creeping. <laughs> it's outside your door. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure at that point I, 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 I cried and peed. But <laughs> that's my that's my realized memory. And the like at the time it was terrifying, of course. But that's why I love horror, because it makes me feel alive. Mm-hmm. Because even if I'm terrified in that moment, I'm still able to feel that emotion. I can't feel emotions the way I can feel fear. Mm-hmm. I guess that's my answer. Man, that reminds me, you know, the, the good old days of Blockbuster. I remember going there with my dad, and he picked up the DVD of Hellraiser, but neither of us had seen the film, and I actually didn't see the film until probably about a year ago. Um, but he used to terrify me with the man with the pins in his face whenever, yeah. And that's that's what I called him until I actually saw Hellraiser. Did I show that to you for the first time? You did. You showed me 90% of my my, okay. my knowledge of horror. And I guess that, that that's a good segue into my question. Mm-hmm. All right, before I start, I just uh, wanted to be clear that if you hear any scraping or scratching noises, that's our uh, two dogs that have decided they did not want us to record um, in silence. So they're here with us now. Um, they also like horror. <laughs> um, and by horror, like, I'm talking about, you know, nutcrackers that we put on the mantle that... They bark at. ...are very uncanny. So, yes, that's another little segue, but we're going to get back on track. Um, by the way, this is a boxed wine interview, so <laughs> um, here's your first question. Before we were together, uh, horror movies weren't obviously a big part of your life, mm -hmm. um, and that's changed a bit now, and let's pretend for a second that this isn't because I've drug you kicking and screaming <laughs> into the fold. Um <laughs> So, in that time, how has your view of the genre changed? Well, that's a good question. Um, in, in some ways it's changed, in some ways it hasn't. I think in terms of what scares me. Um, I used to think that monsters scared me, but now they don't. In so much... Uh, oh, hi, Echo. Uh, a monster have, has just... Yes, it's a little monster. We don't know what she is. She could be a Labrador. She could be something else. She's probably an alien. She's probably an alien. Um, she wants to give her two cents, which is... She she speaks in shapes and colors. Yep. She wasn't cooked enough in the womb. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Uh, you were talking about monsters not scaring you. Oh, that's right. Okay, so monsters. I used to think I was afraid of vampires and werewolves and all that stuff. And now I think um, maybe it's it, it's less scary because I don't know if I necessarily believe that they exist. But what has continued to scare me, because it's something that can't be proven, or something that has been proven, it's something that, you know that's kind of beyond our realm of what we understand in the world is possession. So it's funny because <laughs> like, that was my second question. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask it now. Yeah. Um, and go off track. Um, cause I don't want to ask it again. Mm -hmm. You've already answered it. Um, so you're obviously, you know, more into films lately that are about possession and ghosts mm -hmm. and more of the supernatural rather than monsters and slashers. Um, what draws you to the supernatural in film? I, I think it's because you can't see it. And, you know, we look at any number, like put together any number of 10 films about possession. Some of those people are good people. Some of them are bad people. You know, it doesn't depend on race, class, age. It doesn't matter. Um, it seems to come when you're least expecting it or maybe when you are expecting it. It's just you don't have any control over it. It's it's an entirely um, different uh, 
realm of being. I mean, it's beyond humanity. Is it, is it the lack of control? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I just remember listening to a podcast the other day, like, would you rather see a ghost or be possessed by a ghost? And someone said, oh, I'd rather be possessed by a ghost because then at least you don't know what you're doing. But what if you do know what you're doing? Like what, you know, what if you go in and out of, of consciousness? I'd rather see a ghost. I don't want to be out of control of what I do to my, my family, my pets, my friends, so my are, job. Are you talking about being possessed by a ghost or a demon though? Well, I don't think ghosts can possess you. I think demons possess you. Okay, so would you rather see a demon or be possessed by one? I'd rather see a demon. Okay. Now... As long as they didn't also possess me. Because I think if you see a demon, you're probably going to be possessed by it. Okay, it's so, just, it's it's so scary to me. Like, you have no control over that kind of stuff. You don't know what kind of windows you're going to open, what kind of windows, doors you're going to open. You can open a, a, a demon window. <laughs> That's a thing. A doggy door for a little demon. Yeah. I mean, there's two little demons with us right now. There are. Um, they're very sweet. Um, but Echo you know doesn't what? understand when we talk. She just looks at us like she thinks we're talking to us. And we have the tendency to slip into oh, just, I just talking, talking to us. Talking about our dogs <laughs> a lot. So um, if this is too much, just tell us. Um, all right. Give me a question, though. Okay. Um, kind of a generic question, but I think it's important. You've already talked about the thing and I'm guessing this is going to be your answer, but what is your favorite horror film? Do you have one? Why or why not? Um, yeah, I think the thing is my favorite horror movie. Um, not only that, it's also my favorite movie in general of all genres. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess since I've kind of already answered that, I'll, I'll just say that why it's my favorite. Um, because it's one of the only films I know that does not rely on any of the things that most people like or what draw people to um, a film. There's mm -hmm. no sex. Uh, there's no gratuitous violence. Um in fact, there's not even women. And so, you know, for a, a young boy watching that movie for the first time, I had to like it for what it was and not what it spoke to when it came to titillation or hormones. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot more to that film that I wasn't ready to understand at the time because I probably watched it and... I mean, I guess I, I probably watched it about 10 years after it came out for the first time. Maybe mm -hmm. 92. Um, the reason why that's my favorite horror film, and I think it's probably the best horror film ever made, uh, be, it, it's because it's about the fear of each other um, and not understanding each other. And I think that's the theme of most literature and the most, most films is people trying to understand one another and that's the one movie that I think perfectly states that you'll never be able to actually know another person. Mm -hmm. And that that, 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 that that's it. Man, when you put it like that, that is pretty, pretty damn scary. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, do you want to ask me a second one? Because... Well, I, this is my last question for you. Okay. So, uh, now I know this, but our viewers may not know this. Uh, Drew. Oh, I'm sorry. Listeners. They don't see us. I mean, I mean, like, we could be seen. You can see us. Um, we have. We did say this was a box wine, um, conversation, so. Yes. And if, I'm sure you could find, like, you know, wedding photos of our oh by the way we're married we're married yeah um wedding photos where i was very bloated from drinking a lot of whiskey <laughs> so you could so that i guess that in that point they could be viewers um but as of right now i'd say some probably still listeners yes it was you know slip of the tongue honey i'm gonna slip you the tongue okay um oh, let's keep it <laughs> Not that this, you know, podcast has ever been PG by any means. It's been a lot of R-rated stuff. Sure. Um, 
Okay, so as I was saying, uh, our listeners don't technically know this. Uh, maybe they do. But Drew here is a writer. He's published a book of poetry, um, short stories, a nonfiction essay. Um, he's written novels. I know that you like to write horror. So how does viewing horror and how does, you know, all of these films that you love um, affect you or influence you or do they as a writer? Um, well, look, I feel like I should uh, be clear about this. Yeah, I've, I've written some stuff um, and I like to write horror. That does not mean that I'm good at writing horror. I, I've gotten one horror short story published. Uh, full disclosure, I don't think I'm very good at writing horror. I think that I'm good at writing other things, mm-hmm. you know, without pretension. I, I think that, that my strengths lie elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, drama and, you know, middle brow white guy poetry. <laughs> where, you know, I talk about what does it all mean? And, you know, white privilege and things of that nature. Um, but I think that horror in general is the one genre where you can see true emotion more than anything else. Hmm. Um, because I think the truest emotion that a person can show outside of themselves is fear. Hmm. And it, distrust. Um, and I think that helps any writer or anybody who's trying to work creatively um, to, to see how people interact when all of their options and all of their escapes are gone. Because anything else, yeah. you have other options you can stop using heroin in half nelson or you can you know i'm not saying that no other movies you know don't have desperation but no other genre gives you the ability to see what it's really like when all the cards are laid on the table yeah like uh the first thing i think of is the mist you know, oh, when man. everybody's like, you know, trapped inside of a, a grocery store and their lives are at stake, how do they act? Some are selfless and some take that opportunity to gain power or, you know, justify their own idiosyncrasies or their own psychoses. That movie destroyed me. As well it should, because that's the whole point. And that's, but it doesn't destroy you in like, oh my gosh, I stay up late night thinking about how scared I am of, of an alien invasion. You're more scared about what humanity can do to one another. Yeah. I mean, along with, um, Antichrist, which we did last week. I mean, I think about that film at least once a week. Um, never have I, I guess, left a, a movie sobbing. Like, I, w- I was just collapsed, sobbing at the end of that film. I've never read the short story. Um, and that's the thing. Normally, people don't cry no. in horror movies. No. But it's still technically a horror movie. But it is. It, it's, it's horrific what people will do to one another. Mm-hmm. It's not Dead Man Walking or, you know, Fruitvale Station where, you know, it's a reality-based, this is the, what people are capable of doing to one another. Horror shows you what people will do to one another. Yeah. And that's that's the difference for me. It's interesting to hear. Um, I guess, <clears throat> let me ask my last question and we'll call it. Okay. Uh, my last question is, what makes a horror movie successful? And before you answer, I want to say, in other words, like... Um, do you think that now that, now that you've become a horror head yourself um is success measured by a level of fright Hmm. or or i guess can a horror movie still be considered good if it's not scary yes okay okay i i have i think two answers i think that you can do a great horror movie with an okay script and not a lot of money but what really matters 
is um, acting. When you see the actors acting in a silly way, then it pulls you out of the film. Just like if you ever see a piece of theater that looks kind of silly, that they're not acting in a way that... Unless it's intentionally silly. Unless it's intentionally silly. Um, I think bad acting can easily pull you out of the reality of the horror. And I think secondly, which maybe goes against what I just said about money, but bad effects. But you can easily do like real effects without using um, CG. So yeah. if something doesn't look real, then you're not going to feel that it's real. So, and you know, this kills me to say it as a writer, but you know, I think that there are some great horror movies out there with maybe not so great dialogue or not so great, um, you know, plot elements, but because of the cinematography, because of the acting, it's, it's a great film. Now, of course, maybe you're going to ask me about examples and I can't no, think I'm of any, gonna, no. but this isn't, this isn't an exam. Yeah, like what, what? What did we see? Um, Deathbed, the bed that eats, like weird plot. You know. No plot. No plot. And it's about a bed that eats people. Yeah, but it was kind of good. Like it was but weird. I think, but I think you're verging on camp territory. Maybe. You know, it, it, I'm not telling you what you should think or mm -hmm. that you're wrong. All I'm saying is. I think there's a difference between things that are made... I guess it's also about intention, you know? Yeah. Like, do you think the person that made Deathbed, which... I, I've actually done some research on that film, and I don't remember the director's name. That was the only film he ever did, right? That was the only thing he ever did when it comes to cinema in general. And that's okay. Like, that doesn't mean that, you know, yeah. it needs to be anything more than that. But I'm pretty sure that he was an insurance salesman or something like that before mm -hmm. and after... And the film was never even released. It was a bootleg, yeah. etc. But it was a labor of love. And I guess maybe that's what I saw. I mean, okay, let me be clear. I didn't leave that film saying, wow, that was a great film. What I saw was, like what you just said, like maybe intention. That was a really bad example for me to bring up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that, I, I know what you're talking about. You're yeah. talking about something, you know, where someone has an idea and they just don't have the ability to pull it off the way they want it to. Yeah. Um, I, l l here's, a, here's a real, real question. Do you think that if given all the money and clout in the world that Deathbed could have been good? Mm, no. I mean... So, okay, plot does matter. And what I said was, okay, plot. If you have a shitty plot, obviously it's not going to be a good film. But, you know, to answer your question, I think acting and special effects, those are easily the things that can pull you out of a good film. Absolutely. Um, there's a movie that I keep trying to get you to see. Um, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Mm. The, the plot... It, it, it's it's fine. It's it's not the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. Um, but the film itself is beautiful and terrifying. Um, it's like a work of art. Um, and I would say that uh, there's another film that I love that pretty much nobody, including my partner here, <laughs> loves called Only God Forgives. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and I think that it's... Is that a horror? No, it's not horror at all. But I think it's the same sort of thing where it, it becomes a piece of art versus a narrative or plot-driven story. Like 2001, A Space Odyssey. <sighs> yeah, yeah, but the thing is, he did it, and he blew his load with it, and now nobody else can do it. Because mm. that movie is, of course, incredible. There's, there's yeah. nothing to say about it. But there, it, of course, there's a plot. We might get people to say, you know, you know, call for our beheading because <laughs> we're saying that it doesn't have a plot. Of course, it has a plot, but it also is um, an art piece. In yes. General. Like that. First the, and foremost, it's an art piece. I think it's like the cinematic equivalent of a lava lamp. Which we have in our studio, by the way. And I watch it while I record. 
All right. I, you know what? I think maybe this is probably enough of our <laughs> boxed wine ramblings. Um, what do you think? I think uh, adios, listeners. All right. All right. Um, if you enjoy hearing us talk, if you enjoy um, hearing our ridiculousness uh, that manifests out of uh, a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we gotta go. Our 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 simple dog is is getting us distracted now because she just she needs attention. So um, <laughs> thanks so much for listening. Um, please comment, like, subscribe. Let us know what you think about the show because we enjoy doing this. Uh, we're not doing it because we want it to be anything. We just want wanted to do something creative together. Um, and this seemed like a great avenue for us. So thanks so much for listening to the first nine, now 10 episodes. Um, and now listen to us ramble. Um, I'm Drew and I'll talk to you next week. And I'm Krista. Um, and let us know if you'd like us to have more conversation pieces like this. Hope you have a great evening. Research for this episode was conducted by Dr. Krista Marie DeBanke and Dr. Drew Atana, co-founders of the Scarelove Society, with invaluable assistance provided by the Library of Miskatonic University, where Dr. Scarelove's writings are housed. The Scarelove Society welcomes listener support with liking, sharing, and subscribing through iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you discover your podcasts. The Society also has a Patreon dedicated to the preservation and distribution of Dr. Scarelove's ideas. Each donation also ensures membership into the Scarelove Society itself. Every click and donation is greatly appreciated and works toward ensuring usually closed doors remain open. For more information and source material of this or any episode, please visit drscarelove.com.